You're listening to TIP. Absolutely, like hands down, the very, very, very best list is inherited properties. On today's show, I chat with Josh Miller about his decision to leave his high paying corporate job and go full time into real estate investing, what wholesaling is, how to creatively find the right zip codes and monetize leads, and a bunch more. After 10 years at a corporate job with a six figure salary, Josh left to pursue real estate full-time. In a little over a year, he acquired 307 contracts, bought and sold hundreds of properties, and held on to 120 of them in his own portfolio as rentals. Then in 2019, he founded go for close leveraging his real estate experience and marketing knowledge to help fellow investors achieve the same success by providing them with a marketing platform and qualified leads. As the real estate market has heated up, over the last year or two, it's gotten harder to find deals, and this episode gives a bunch of different ways to creatively find good deals off market, even if you've never done it before. So I hope you guys enjoy it. Let's dive in. You're listening to Real Estate Investing by the Investors Podcast Network, where your host, Robert Leonard, interviews successful investors from various real estate investing niches to help educate you on your real estate investing journey. Hey everyone, welcome back to the Real Estate 101 podcast. I am your host, Robert Leonard, and with me today, I have Josh Miller. Josh, welcome to the show. Awesome, Robert. Thank you for having me on. I'm a longtime listener, so it's really cool to be one of those small fish that gets to come on your show and share this story. So excited about today and the opportunity. I really appreciate that. I'm excited to have you here as well. Give us a little bit about your background. You don't have to give us too much detail. We'll dive into that throughout the conversation, but give us a quick overview of your background. Maybe tell us a bit about the big change you just made that we talked about before we started recording. Tell us a little bit about yourself and so the audience get to know you a little bit, and then we'll dive into the rest of the conversation. Sounds good. So yeah, did the whole college thing, graduated, ended up getting an incredible engineering job for the third largest company in the US. I thought I would retire there, do the whole 30-year pension and all that. Life-changing moment was when my mentors, he was 75 his whole life. He'd been looking forward to retirement, lost all during the stock crash and ended up finally retiring at 75. Six months later, he passed away. And that was like the eye opener to me of like, man, life is short. Maybe going 30 years at this amazing job isn't really the great American dream. It's all played out to be. So started looking for opportunities, discovered real estate. I'm a data geek. I love data. So use the data to really figure what to do. And it was nationwide marketing, trying to find the best markets all over the country, which was not really something done, but I didn't know any better and ended up picking up my first deal for made around 30, 40K off of that first deal. And that allowed me to I didn't want to quit my job. So instead, I hired two people to work for me and do more of that and ended up buying in over 30 different states, just buying and selling these properties. That was extremely stressful. It was a a lot of hard work. Also, I felt like the market was going to crash at any time and I'd be left holding the bag with all these properties. So decided again to look at the data, chose Omaha, Nebraska, because Warren Buffett was... No, it was like, that's where the data pointed and started buying rentals. Like figured that was really the way to achieve financial freedom and the passive income and everything else. And a year goes by, I have a hundred and a year and a half actually, I have 120 rentals, all single family, some a little bit multifamily in there. And I was like, I was done. I was like, okay, I left my corporate job so I wouldn't have a job. I still have a job. How do I get out of this? Well, I have to stop. So I actually ended up stopping in 2019 just living off of my rental income. That lasted for about a year. And then I realized that owning a whole bunch of single family homes in a different state is not passive at all. And so 2020, I ended up selling all but about a dozen properties and putting it all into Bitcoin. And that ended up being a great decision, way better than I was expecting. And so now I guess I'm retired. I'm not really though, because I still work every day and really enjoy the data portion of what I was doing. So still continue doing that. So yeah, that's my life. Did you cash out of your Bitcoin position? No, I didn't. I started buying probably in 2016, 17, and I've just held. And so yeah, I continue holding 
And I don't plan on selling anytime. Like, I really think that real estate is a great way to make money. Like, there's nothing better in my mind than real estate to make a quick, I don't want to say a quick buck, but to make money. And then I like crypto actually to hold my money. And now with staking all this other stuff, it's a great way to earn passive income as well. So, probably the reverse of what most people say, but that's my experience is make your money in real estate, but it sit in crypto. Not a lot of people listening to the show have left their corporate job to invest in real estate full-time. My guess is that quite a few people have that goal. They just haven't gotten there yet. So what were your considerations before making the leap? How did you ensure that you didn't have golden handcuffs? Yeah, great question. So for me, I realized what I was really good at. I was really good at the data and I wasn't good at sales. I wasn't good at talking to homeowners. I wasn't good at operations. I wasn't good at all these things. And so in my mind, I kept my corporate job and actually used that income to hire people to do those roles, those positions that I was not good at. And I bought hundreds and hundreds of properties. I've talked to a total of two homeowners. The first one and then one later on, just because I realized like I'm not good at talking on the phone. So I actually kept my corporate job for a long time because I needed that money to pay other people. And when to leave, I look at it at an hourly basis. Maybe that's my engineering brain, but I look at what I was getting paid at my job. So let's just use a round number. Let's say I was making $100 an hour. If I could hire people for less than $100 an hour, in my real estate business, then I should just keep working my corporate job and hire people that probably cost less than $100 an hour and were better at it than I would ever be. Once you surpass that, which I was looking at the visionary position and, and if to hire somebody in that position, you're probably looking at three, $400 an hour. At that point, when you get to a position where you need to hire somebody at that dollar rate, then I say that's the point you need to move on. And so what if you're hiring multiple people? Let's just say you're going to hire two, three, four, five people at $20, $30, $40 an hour. Are you looking at that in total? So what their total hourly rate would be rather than just not one person? Yep, absolutely. But at the same time, you got to look... Well, not no, it's not cumulative because it's what you can do. You only have so much time in a day. So yeah, maybe you could do it two-thirds times better than somebody else. You may not use a full dollar amount, but at the same time, yeah, you got to add those. What is your time worth? Essentially, is what it comes down to. How does somebody know when they're actually ready to take the leap? Is it strictly just based on that hourly rate dynamic that we just talked about? Or should somebody have a certain number of properties? Does their monthly cash flow have to exceed their current income? How do you think about those things? Honestly, I would probably still be at my job if they didn't give me an ultimatum. I think they gave you an ultimatum too, if I remember right. They did. Yeah. At the end of the day, they moved the whole company down to Houston and I was in California and I loved my job and I probably would still be there because it was incredible. It's a data job that I get to work with some of the smartest people in the world. But yeah, at the end of the day, that was my driving like factor. For anyone else though, where they're not giving you an ultimatum, I did have quite a lot of passive income coming through from all my rentals when I left. I was making pretty much the exact same so that definitely helps a lot. I don't think that there's any hard number that you need to look at other than make sure you have that 100% confidence that what you're going to be going to set out to do will 100% work. If there's any doubt in your mind, don't do it because it probably won't work. Was your ultimatum that you had to move to Texas or was it that you couldn't do your real estate on the side? No, it was that I had to move to Texas. I was still doing all my real estate on the side. I was doing incredible. They loved me. I loved them. Like it was great. But um, they sold our company like three years prior. My little job that I was at that for the big corporate, they sold it off. And so they only kept a handful of employees. Like I was one of three out of, I think, 400 that they kept. And they told everybody else, you have to move. And I kept staying on, staying on, staying on. So after about three years, they're like, look, Josh. We like you, but you got to move. And I was like, I'm sorry, I'm going to pursue this real estate. So you mentioned that you had 120 properties, rentals in your portfolio. I don't want to just gloss over that. I don't want to skip that. I want to go back because that's a massive number. And I know you did it in a short period of time. And you also did 307 contracts. I want to talk a lot more about your background and some of those deals. So tell us a bit more about what some of those properties look like. Tell us what the contracts were, what exactly you're doing with all these properties. 
Yeah, great question. So depends on what you're doing. I focused on the data. I focused on marketing. To me, it was really all about marketing and sales. So I would find the right areas to target in the city. I would find homeowners who needed to sell. I would get it under contract and then I would figure out what to do from there. And so all of the contracts, essentially, we would have a disposition team that had really cool Excel tools and other tools to, and a flow chart to figure out what to do. The first is always, I wanted to keep it as a rental. But if, if it didn't fit the right ROIs, if we didn't have crews available, funds available, et cetera, we look at the next option. So, and I can just rattle them off and we can go into any of them at detail, but rentals, fix and flips, lease options, wholesaling, wholesaling, realtor referrals. So essentially, we just generated contracts and then figured out how to make money off of those contracts in whatever way made sense with the property and the conditions of the sale. What is wholesaling? Wholesaling is where you buy a property and you don't put any money into it to fix it up, but then you just immediately list it on the MLS and you resell it. Different than a fix and flip, fix and, you're putting actually repairs into it. Different than a wholesale because a wholesale, you don't actually close on the property. You don't go through title and escrow to actually take possession of it in your name. So it's like a wholesale, but you've just taken ownership. You've taken title of it. Yeah, there are some downsides. The downsides are you have to pay for the closing costs. But the upside is you now actually own it and you can list it on the MLS where you can have as many showings as you want and you'll typically get a much higher price for it than you would just wholesaling it. What period of time did you do this 120 rental properties and 307 contracts? Was it over a year? Yeah. So I was doing nationwide up until about mid-2017. And then mid-2017 is when I moved to Omaha. I chose... I stayed in Los Angeles, but I virtually moved to Omaha. And then it wasn't until about 2019, beginning of 2019, that I was like, okay, I'm done. So really, if you look at it, all of 2018 is when the bulk of everything happened. So you're looking at anywhere from 8 to 10 deals a month. Not only that, I mean, that's a ton of work. I mean, I've closed on the most I've done in one month was three, and that was a ton of paperwork, and it was just a ton of work. It sounds like you probably had some employees to help you with that. But also, on top of that, I mean, 120 properties in a year, that's a lot of capital needed. And I mean, even financing, financing is a nightmare. So, a couple things. One, how did you or what did you use for capital to buy these properties? And two, how did you deal with the financing piece of it? Yeah, great. So I really believe in staying in your lane and staying what you're good at. And I was good at numbers and data. And so that's all I did was the figuring out the marketing really, and then finances. You can't really hand that off to anybody else as far as raising money. So that was the other thing that I spent a lot of time in. So I'm glad you're asking these questions because everything else I don't really know anything about. But yeah, with regarding the money, I think it's great to go back to my very first deal. It was in somewhere in Wisconsin. And it was, I needed $40,000 to close on it. And I didn't have $40,000. So my very first deal, I actually went on to biggerpockets.com and I wrote a post saying like, look, I have this property. I think it's worth $100,000. I'm buying it for 40. Will anybody lend to me? And like, I don't know why, but somebody said yes. And I was honest. I was like, I've never done a deal, like, but here's the facts. And they wrote me a promissory note and uh, for 10% flat interest, no points, which was incredible. I had up to a year to pay it back and I had to pay a fat 10%. I ended up buying and then closing it to the realtor who was supposed to list it to me the next day. So he got his, the investor got his money back like within two days, but that was my money on the first transaction. So that was the way I raised money for a long time was just going out and asking strangers, asking friends, asking family and saying, Hey, look, your money's secured by a property. So if anything happens, you got this property. And so I raised a lot of money that way, but it's expensive. That's essentially hard money lending. When I started building up my rental portfolio in Omaha, I don't know why I did this, but the first day I landed to go check out the city, I didn't actually check out any of the properties. I just checked out the banks. I just went and started walking into every single local bank saying, Hey, I'm Josh Miller. Uh, you know, I'm a big time investor, <laughs> like really selling myself, but having them just meet me so that when I went back to them months later and said, Hey, look, I got all these properties. They knew who I was and everything else. So spent 
a lot of time at the beginning with hard money lenders and then some bigger companies like Lima One Capital and some other nationwide lenders. And then over time, once the local banks started seeing like, oh, this guy is legit, they started lending to me. And those are incredible because I was actually getting paid for every single one of my rentals. It was insane because just think about our marketing. We were getting everything was off market. So we were getting incredible deals at 60 cents on the dollar. So let's say a house costs $100,000. We were getting it under contract for, say, $60,000, maybe $70,000. The local banks would loan to me at 80% of the fair market value. So they were giving me a loan at 80 for 80,000. So I buy it for 60. I get a loan on it for 80. I just got paid to buy a rental, which is like insane. So that's really what allowed me to grow. I reached my first million of loans with the first bank. And they're like, you got to pause for a second. Like we're going a little too fast. So I just reached out to another bank and another bank and another bank. And everyone seemed really happy. Like they banks want to make money too. So here's a guy that has a solid property management and like it's finding these incredible deals. They didn't even inspect. I don't know if things have changed now, but in 2018, 2019, I would give them the address. They would drive by. <laughs> They'd be like, okay, yeah, that house is worth 100K. And I was asking, yeah. So it worked out really well. I literally got paid to build up my rentable income, which is kind of cool. What were they looking at to underwrite that deal? Were you at your W-2 job at the time? So they were just using your W-2 income to kind of approve that loan? Or was it just because it was based on the asset? It was asset-based loan and it was just such a good deal that they were okay with it? Yeah. So at the beginning, it was definitely the W-2. At the beginning, it was definitely all about me. 100% it was all about me. It was about me securing it. I'm forgetting the term, but essentially... I was at risk. So if anything happened, Josh Miller had to pay. But over time, yeah, it was 100% about the deal. It was 100% about the property and where the property was located. And our corporation, our LLC, that was that who it was who was borrowing it. And just looking at another nice thing that was that we were able to do was we built up a really nice line of credit as well. And so when I had a line of credit for a million dollars just sitting there, we weren't touching it. And I'm asking for a loan for $70,000, $80,000. They're like, yeah, this totally makes sense. So at the beginning, it's all about you, your W-2. But over time, it turns into just about the deal. How did the ownership structure change over time? Because you were working with hard money guys at the beginning. So were you paying them all just a hard percent fee on top of whatever you borrowed? Or were some of them taking equity? Did you have partners? And did that change over time as you went to banks? Or were you always just 100% owner and you just found financing? I did try it one time. I reached out to some friends and they lent me 400K to... Well, they weren't friends, but friends of friends. And we tried to structure it and it just got very... It's very time consuming and everything else. So yeah, it was always about just paying a percentage. Essentially, I said, look, the dream is to own a bank. The banks are all the biggest companies in the world. Like that's everyone's dream. You can be a bank. Like that's straight up. And people kind of got that. And so, yeah, I wasn't doing equity other than the one time. It's always about here's an interest rate and we'll pay you. Do you want it back in a year? Do you want it back in three years? Do you want it back in five years? So, and yeah, it typically ranged between 6%. And I was paying as high as 12% at one time when I really, really needed money and there was a great deal. It made sense to do 12% because I knew I, was, I could pay it back and still make money. Let's take a quick break and hear from today's sponsors. Hey everyone, it's Patrick, your host of Millennial Investing. Every year, my buddies and I do a guy's trip to escape the cold and dreary Ohio winters. Once we pick our destination, without fail, we all jump on Airbnb and find an incredible place to stay. We just got back from an amazing trip in Palm Springs, California, and our Airbnb home was a huge part of creating memories we'll never forget. I loved it so much, I'm taking my family back to Palm Springs for spring break, and we're staying in an Airbnb home my kids fell in love with and picked out themselves. While I was there, I had the realization that my own home could be an Airbnb. It's an excellent way to earn some extra cash, whether you're saving up for your next vacation, paying off some bills, or investing. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. That's airbnb.com slash host. Hey guys, have you ever wondered if there's an AI tool like ChatGPT specifically built for the stock market? A tool that not only does the research and analysis for you, but also allows for dynamic discussions? 
Well, wonder no more. Meet Meka, your AI-powered stock research assistant, now enhanced with real-time stock data. Let Meka do the heavy lifting for you to significantly reduce your research time. And the best part, Meka is 100% free. Ask Meka questions like, explore the financial health of Apple through a summary of its balance sheet. Compare the financial statements of Apple and Tesla. What is the analyst price target for Microsoft? What is the social sentiment analysis of Amazon and millions of other queries right at your fingertips? Visit Meka.com. That's M-E-Y-K-A.com. Buy low, sell high. It's easy to say, hard to do. For example, high interest rates are crushing the real estate market right now. Demand is dropping and prices are falling, even for many of the best assets. It's no wonder the Fundrise flagship fund plans to go on a buying spree expanding its billion-dollar real estate portfolio over the next few months. You can add the Fundrise flagship fund to your portfolio in just minutes and with as little as $10 by visiting fundrise.com slash millennial investing. Carefully consider the investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses of the Fundrise flagship fund before investing. This and other information can be found on the fund's prospectus at fundrise.com slash flagship. This is a paid advertisement. All right. Back to the show. Talk to us a bit about your marketing. I don't want to go past that either because that's clearly... I mean, if you're able to buy things at 60, 70 cents on the dollar, obviously people listening are going to be interested in that. And we'd love to learn what your strategies were to do that and how we can do it too. Yeah, absolutely. And it has definitely gotten a lot tougher. I still do a lot of marketing every day, but it is a thousand percent still possible today. So don't think like, oh, that was two years ago. That was three years ago. No, it still is. It's just harder. It's really about two things. When I keep saying data, it's all about the data. It's about one, choosing the right market, and then two, choosing the right list to go after. So as far as choosing the right market, the big overview of that is just think about it. If you were to go door knocking, if you had to go knock to get one deal, you had to knock on 10 doors versus you had to walk knock on a thousand doors. Where would you want to be knocking? So choosing the right market is, I think, the most important. And then the second most important is, okay, what list are you going after? And that's where there's really no secrets. It's just people don't want to put in the hard work to get it. Anything you can buy. Anything that you can buy a software or buy a list, it's no good. And the reason it's no good is because there's, I like biggerpockets.com forward slash stats. It shows you how many new members they get every single day. They get over a thousand new members every day. That means there's 30,000 new investors coming into the space every month. So if you can buy something, if you can easily locate it, it's probably not a good list. It's probably not a good marketing strategy. What really is the good ones is the things that are really hard to get. So think of what's hard to get. It's arrest records. It's evictions. It's code violations. It's water shutoffs. It's all of these different distress factors that are 100% public. It's 100% possible to get. But because it's hard to get, like for example, let's say an arrest record, you have to go onto your county jail or prison website, it, figure out a way to extract the names. It's all public of the people getting arrested, then take those names, go to your county website, put those names in, see if the names match up and see if they own a property. I mean, that's a lot of work, but that's where we're at today. It's no longer can you just buy a, say, an absentee list and say, oh, the guy lives out of state. He must have some distress factors. I'm going to mail to him. It does work, but you need an insane amount of quantity to make that work. Then it's just a numbers game. If you don't have a large budget or if you're just starting off, then it, it really does become about choosing the right market and choosing the right niche to really go in at. And the harder it is to get, the better it's going to be. So for somebody who's listening who hasn't heard of what lists are in real estate, a list, like Josh just said, you might have an absentee list, which just means that the owner doesn't live where the property is. They're an absentee owner. And so basically what the list is, it's just a list of all these owners in a given area. And then the strategy is to then call these people and see if they want to sell their property. There's all kinds of different lists. Absentee is just one of them. You mentioned some of the more peculiar ones, right? Like arrest records and some of the other ones. Why do those work? Like, What do you do with an arrest record? You find a guy or a girl that's got arrested. How does that turn into a good real estate deal? <laughs> so what we're looking for as an, a real estate investors, we're looking for homeowners who... It's not that they want to sell their house, they need to sell their house. 
So they're in some type of distress factor that selling their house is a solution to their problem. If it's all about money, then honestly, real estate investors can't help all that much. The Probably the best solution is to list the property and sell the property through a realtor because that's how you're going to get the most amount of money. So we're not looking for the people who have the money problem. We're looking for the homeowners who have some type of distress factor in their life that we can help solve. And this home is part of the problem. So hoarders, a landlord who can't evict his tenant, these are all issues, problems in their life that they want solved. We've bought properties from realtors, which is mind-boggling. Like That doesn't make sense to me. Like Why would a realtor sell me their property so I could make money off of it? Why don't they just list it? But that realtor had a problem and I was an easier solution for them than it was for her just to list it herself or to have somebody in her office list it. So that's why coming up with those lists and finding those problems is so important. And then the conversation doesn't become about money. It becomes about, okay, what's the problem with your life? Oh, you got arrested. Okay, well, what are you doing with the property? Oh, it's just sitting there. Oh, shoot. And you're having to pay the taxes on it. Oh, you're having to pay the insurance on it, whatever the case might be. Or there's squatters in it. Oh, all your friends are just sitting in there taking, doing drugs. And, you know, like that sucks for you. Why don't we let, you know, what I'll do? I'll kick them all out. I'll get a sheriff down there. We'll kick them out. We'll sell the property. We'll get you the funds. And that way, your old friends can't take advantage of you. Sound good? Sounds good. So that's the kind of reason we're going after these harder to get lists. You just mentioned arrests, which I think is a pretty interesting one that I hadn't really given much thought to. What are some of the other more peculiar ones, I guess you could say, that you've used in the past that work really well? Or just in general, what are the best working lists that you've found to have the most success? Yeah. So absolutely, like hands down, the very, very, very best list is inherited properties. Inherited properties are like, there's no comparison because when you inherit a property and this happens a lot. Like, there's a lot of inherited properties going on. Anytime somebody passes away, essentially, there's an inherited property. How do you find that? Do you look for death records? Yeah, we look through death records, absolutely. So, we actually, every single day, we get every single that person that, that passed away in the US and we look and we see, okay, did that person own a property? Some of those you can buy. There's lots of companies that sell like pre-probate records and other things. But I found that it's best to choose a market and then do it yourself in that market. That is the very best. Once you start combining an inherited list with other lists, then it just skyrockets. So if you can find an inherited property where there's a code violation on it or an inherited property where there's some tax delinquency on it or a code violation and a vacancy, that's really where you're going to... like It's a done deal. It's just when they're going to sell, it's just who they're going to sell to. Why is inherited so good? Because there's no like sense of there's no like hey this house is mine I need to maximize the dollar amount that I get from it. It's typically it's a problem that we can come and solve of like oh you got this house you're not sure what to do with it let me solve that problem versus if you live in a house or you paid for the house and things have been appreciating right so in their mind, it might be worth 100000 when it's really worth 400000 and all sorts of crazy situations. But yeah, if you want to spend your time, the best use of your time is going to be going after those inherited lists. I've heard these types of strategies a lot from wholesalers. Do you use this for finding rental properties too, or do you only use this for your wholesaling? Yeah. So the way I saw it was I wanted, I wanted deals, right? And at the end of the day, if I spend my money on marketing to try and get up to my perfect rental, but I'm dismissing all these other opportunities, that's silly. So spend your money on marketing, get the contract signed, and then figure out what to do with it. Of course, you'd love it to be a rental property. But if it fits all these other criteria of like, maybe it's not a great rental, it's kind of like, of course, you should try to monetize it. So we talk with people every day that it's the best thing for them is to list the property. I would love to buy it as a rental, but the numbers don't make sense for me. And so you should list the property. So getting a realtor referral fee from that, or I know there's some technicalities about realtors paying referrals, but there's ways to do it. That's a great way to pay for your marketing. So you can do more marketing. 
so you can buy more rentals. Because at the end of the day, if you can be buying properties at a discount and like I was getting paid to buy my rentals, that makes a lot of sense. At least (laughs) I think so. What is the cost for this list strategy that we're talking about? Let's say someone listening to the show is like, wow, I love this strategy. makes a lot of sense. I want to try it. How much does it cost them to go get these lists and do this? Is there any upfront costs? What are their marketing costs, et cetera? Yeah, absolutely not. That's why I really think real estate is the best strategy to make money versus other strategies like crypto and stock investing, which is more of a, you kind of need money to make money or you need to be super lucky or something. But with real estate, it's almost like there's so many ways to make money in it that really... No, you don't. You really, really don't need. It sounds weird. I'm sounding like uh, one of those fake guru people, whatever. But you don't need to buy anything. That's what's crazy about it. Every list I mentioned is online on county websites, on government websites that you can go access and get for absolutely free. Where you start may decide to. So that's if you have no money. If you do have some money, it does help. Because you can pay for people to go and extract these lists. You can pay for virtual assistants to do the work for you. You can find companies who already have that data and then buy that data from those companies. So money just helps speed things along. But every list and every niche is essentially free. So go get that list. And then it's like, okay, how do I actually contact that person? Well, then you're going to have to spend some money, but it's actually not that much. You can one, you can skip trace that contacts. You literally just need an address and you can put it into... There's a hundred different things out there. You put that address in and it spits out a phone number. Or if the better is just go knock on the door, talk to the neighbors, and that's 100% free and be like, hey, I'm an investor. And the nice thing is you don't need to know the hundred next steps. Because once you get that contract, you can go partner with an established real estate investor you can there's so many things you can do so you don't need to know okay how do i raise money how do i sell this contract and all the other stuff how do i if i want to keep it as a rental how do i work in the banks like literally just to get that piece of paper that contract is worth so much money right now do you think there's any value in just the leads themselves without the contract what if somebody Maybe they're saying to themselves, I'm really comfortable. I'll go get all this list. I'll do all the work. I'll find 50 different people that seem like they could be good potentials. I don't know. I haven't talked to them. I have no idea if they want to sell or not. I'm not really interested in talking to these people. I'm not good at it. I don't like it. I don't want to do it. And I don't really know the lingo. I don't want to do the contract, etc. But I have this list of 100, 200 people, whatever it is, that might be good leads for somebody else, an investor. Almost like a VA, I guess you could say. Is there value in that? And is there a way that somebody could start generating a little bit of money doing it that way for their local area? Like, What if you live in a small town and you just want to do it for local investors? Yeah, I would. That 100% would work, but I would start with the conversation first with an established investor. Find out who's kind of like the biggest guy in town doing the most number of deals and go talk to them and say, look, I'm just trying to learn. I don't have the money right now to hire a sales guy. So can I use your entire team? You're going to get paid a whole lot less than if you actually got in a contract. But a thousand percent, a really established investor would say like, hell yeah, you'll go do all this work. You'll bring it. Absolutely. But I will give a fair warning that because there's so much money in this space, there also is a ton, a ton of bad people in this space. And there's just a really like, I don't know why it is, but it seems to attract a lot of bad apples. So I'd be very careful about who you partner with. Really try to find the people who aren't just in it for the money, but who are doing good things, have built great teams and everything else, because there's a lot of shady stuff going on. Well, the model that I'm thinking of is very similar to like Zillow, right? Real estate agents pay Zillow X dollars for a lead for a potential seller or buyer. And then whether that works out or not is kind of up to the real estate agent. And there's a couple different models, but that's a very popular model for real estate agents. They'll pay for leads. So I was kind of thinking, like, would real estate investors pay for leads to potential properties? Just like Zillow doesn't know if that person's going to actually buy or sell or when they will, the person who's finding these lists doesn't know if they're going to buy or sell, but they could still sell those leads to an investor as if they were like the agent in the other example. A hundred percent. And all I'm saying is like, don't just put it out there. Like, because you just want to make sure you partner with the right investor that you're selling it to. Because I have heard people like doing all this work, selling the leads, and then the investor be like, thanks a lot. I'll pay you if I get make any money and they make money and they don't pay. So 
just make sure you align yourself with the right investor. Don't just throw it out to anybody. Because if you do a lot of this hard work, it is hard work. Obviously, you want to make sure you get paid. But that's absolutely 100% viable solution for somebody who doesn't have the skills or the money to hire a good salesperson, take it the whole way. Yeah, you definitely want to make sure that person has a reputation and make sure you don't want to get taken advantage of. But I see this as a way where you could literally make money with zero dollars. All you got to do, I mean, just put in a little bit of time and effort and you could make money. I mean, a big one in this, I don't think you should do this, not you specifically, but the listeners, because I think your time is worth more than this. But there's this thing called bird dogging or driving for dollars where literally investors pay people to go drive around town looking for uh, rundown homes, maybe on trash day that they didn't take, put out their trash, things, indicators that might be vacant, and then you send them those lists. But you're not going to get paid that much because that's a low dollar per cost work. That's $10 an hour work. You really should be trying to go after these harder to get lists because that's not $10 an hour work. It is if you have the... You set it up, but the visionary to kind of create the structure and the SOP to follow, that's not $10 an hour work. And those lists that we get online, whether it be arrest records, inherited lists, whatever, might be probably more valuable than the lists you get when you go driving for dollars or bird dogging. And so that might make the value per hour better for somebody who's looking to do that. 100%. I mean, driving for dollars is incredible. It's a great list for sure. But I would still prefer my inherited list. And the reason that I feel like I agree with that is because I've seen some houses that look like they are absolutely like ready to go, ready to be sold, ready, you know, they're just done. And then I've seen the same guy live there for 20 years still. And like you, so you just don't know, you know what I mean? And things could look bad from the outside. And I guess you just don't know. And it's the same way with the list, I suppose. But I think you can only gauge so much from trash cans and what it looks like outside. When we started talking about this, you said the first piece was to find the right location to even get these lists. So what does that look like? What does the right market look like? What do you define as right or good? So a lot does depend on your niche list. But essentially, what we're trying to do is we're trying to find a lot of distress. That's a lot of distress in an area combined with people buying and people flipping and investors buying in that area. If you were in buying in certain areas of Detroit in the wrong time, you could get homes for free. You could get paid to get homes. So yeah, there's lots of distress, but there's no need for the homes. So what we're really trying to do is look at MLS data to see where is our low days on market, where is a lot of activity. We're looking at county records to see, hey, where are a lot of cash buyers buying? And we're looking at demographics, looking at things like where's there a lot of distress with not an, an insane amount of crime? Where there's too much crime, you really want to stay out of because investors don't want to be buying in those areas. And I actually wrote down three websites. So all of this is free, which is cool, that you can go to to actually get this data for yourself and start diving in. The first one for MLS data, Realtor.com actually recently released their full MLS data set, which is crazy to me because it's always been so private. It's been always so hard to get days on market. First, you'd have to get your Realtor's access, all this stuff. They released it all, which is crazy, and it's updated monthly. So you can find a full Excel file there with all of that info. And then for county data, there's some good tricks. You can actually get a lot of information from listsource.com without paying for anything. And if you YouTube like how to find cash buyers from listsource.com, you'll find a tutorial on how to do that. And then the third, which is my favorite, is eig.org. And that's where you can get a demographic data for free, which is crazy. There's an option to purchase it, which is what I've done, but there's also a free option just to view the data and see there's actually a really cool heat map and so what I've done is I've combined those three data sets along with a lot of others and created a cool free tool. So people are welcome to look at that. But if you want to do it your own and you love data, then those are three great websites to go check out for yourself. Let's take a quick break and hear from today's sponsors. Hey, everyone. It's Patrick, your host of Millennial Investing. Every year, my buddies and I do a guy's trip to escape the cold and dreary Ohio winters. Once we pick our destination, without fail, we all jump on Airbnb and find an incredible place to stay. 
We just got back from an amazing trip in Palm Springs, California, and our Airbnb home was a huge part of creating memories we'll never forget. I loved it so much, I'm taking my family back to Palm Springs for spring break, and we're staying in an Airbnb home my kids fell in love with and picked out themselves. While I was there, I had the realization that my own home could be an Airbnb. It's an excellent way to earn some extra cash, whether you're saving up for your next vacation, paying off some bills, or investing. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. That's airbnb.com slash host. Buy low, sell high. It's easy to say, hard to do. For example, high interest rates are crushing the real estate market right now. Demand is dropping and prices are falling, even for many of the best assets. It's no wonder the Fundrise flagship fund plans to go on a buying spree, expanding its billion-dollar real estate portfolio over the next few months. You can add the Fundrise flagship fund to your portfolio in just minutes and with as little as $10 by visiting fundrise.com slash millennial investing. Carefully consider the investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses of the Fundrise flagship fund before investing. This and other information can be found in the fund's prospectus at fundrise.com slash flagship. This is a paid advertisement. Hey guys, the Range Rover Sport leads by example. It's got powerful on-road performance and commanding all-terrain capability and combines assertive on-road performance with the signature Range Rover refinement that you'd expect. The third-generation Range Rover Sport is the most desirable, advanced, and dynamically capable one yet and redefines sporting luxury. It's got advanced cabin technologies such as active noise cancellation and cabin air purification, which offer new levels of comfort and refinement. The purposeful cockpit-like driving position sets the tone for a focused interior that promotes exhilarating driver engagement. Award-winning PIVI Pro infotainment is at the heart of the experience and provides intuitive control of the vehicle systems. You can also enjoy a dynamic drive in total comfort with optional 22-way adjustable heated and ventilated electric memory front seats with massage function. Design your Range Rover Sport at LandRoverUSA.com. That's LandRoverUSA.com. All right, back to the show. You talked about crime. What do you define as too much crime? What is that threshold? And it's probably different for multiple people, right? Like you might have an opinion on what too much crime is, and I might have a different opinion on what too much crime is. But I'm curious to hear what do you think is too much crime? And one of the ways that I go about this is I invest long distance exclusively pretty much. And one of the ways I do it is I look up what the crime is where I live so I can get an idea as to what the crime is. And then I look for that same demographic data point for crime in the other city. And so I can compare the two and I can say, okay, it's more crime than where I live or it's less crime. And I can kind of get an idea. Because if you use different metrics, you might not know and you can't compare apples to oranges. So if you use the same data, that's how I like to do it. But what do you find is too much crime? Yeah. So I really like that uh, EIG.org website and it actually ranks the entire country on one scale. So it's really nice. I don't typically... This won't mean much to you right now, but it's 0 to 100, 100 being like you cannot set foot in that area. One being like it's uh, Beverly Hills. So I usually like to stay under the 94 mark. But yeah, it is all relative. And I think that's where... You can look at it on a number, on a data set, but then at the end of the day, actually going there and looking at it. A great example of this is when I first started and looking at Omaha, Nebraska, there was these certain zip codes that everyone was like, oh, stay away from it. It's horrible. It's like gang zone and all this other stuff. I'm from Los Angeles. Like I went there and I was like, this is like... <laughs> This is nice. What are you talking about? This is so it is all super relative. Really, at the end of the day, especially if you're wholesaling, especially if you're just getting things under contracts, is it doesn't matter how bad the crime is in your mind as long as there's investors buying there. So look at homes that are on the market. And if you see that they've been fixed up and repaired, there's investors there. That doesn't take any really data. That just goes on Zillow. Look at what's being sold. Is has that home been flipped? If it has, you know that there's investors still doing as long as it hasn't been on the market for 200 days. Like, make sure like these homes are getting moved. But yeah, it, crime is relative, like you said. So don't be afraid of uh, what people say or what you might think. There's always out of state investors who will think differently than you. Well, I mean, if the scale is one to 100 and you're willing to go up to 94, I mean, that sounds and 100 is as if you'd never want to step foot in there. 
going to 94, I mean, that seems like you'd take on a lot of crime. Yeah, absolutely. But I wouldn't hold a rental in 94. What is your threshold for rentals? I don't know because I only marketed in one city. So I don't, for my rentals. So I don't know what like that magic number is. But I think that's like this fear thing that a lot of people have is like, oh, that's a dangerous part of town. I don't want to buy rentals there, but there's no reason you can't make money there. And when choosing a market, one of the things I missed that I really look at is, and especially if you're starting out, is choosing these lower priced zip codes, these lower priced areas where the home prices are less than 200000 And the reason that's so important is one, and I think in the most important aspect is, it's really hard to F up on homes under 200000 Like Even worst case scenario, and you way overbought, you overpaid by, let's say, 20K. 20K is absolutely forgivable, and you can always dig yourself out of a 20K mistake. Versus if you're buying a $500,000 property and you buy it too high, and now you're in, you do your repairs too high and you're, you know, 100K over, that's kind of hard to dig out of. So when choosing a market, going to these areas that are under 200K, stay, it's, I like to stay out of the areas on less than 50K, you're going to do well because one, it's very forgivable. And then two, homeowners, 10K is not that much to them, right? If you have a, an asset that you bought for 20 and now it's worth 100 and somebody comes and says, hey, you don't have to do anything and just sign this paper and this problem's done, dealt with, 10K is not that big of a deal. 15K is not that... But for us, that's a lot of money to make on a deal versus somebody who owns a property 500,000, you need to be 100K less in order to make all the numbers work, the closing costs, the hard money, all that other stuff. So that's why I really like that 50 to 200K range. And I feel the same way. I feel like there's a lot of gurus out there in the real estate world that tell people that you need to go as big as possible as soon as they can. And I've always kind of just disagreed with that and felt that people should start as small as they can at first, just because like you talked about, $10,000, $20,000, it's manageable, right? You can salvage something from it. You're not going to dig yourself a massive hole. And so that's why I like to personally recommend people start small. And so if they totally screw it up, whatever the type of deal is, as long as even if you screw it up, you're not going to dig yourself a hole that you can't get out of. But if you do this with a $750,000 property, I mean, that's another story, right? That's a big hole to have to dig yourself out of. That's so interesting hearing you say this because yeah, I did hundreds of properties and made millions of dollars and it was a ton of work. And some guy can say, look, I just did one property and there's a big hundred unit multifamily and I made a million dollars. Like, what would you rather do? Hundreds of properties or, but like, yeah, if I knew everything to do that, sure, of course, it's way, 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 way less work, but there's so much knowledge and experience. And if anyone could just go and make a million dollars wholesaling a multifamily or whatever, everyone would be like, it's not easy. Even doing the single family homes, telling somebody to knock off 10K off their price so that you can make some money and make this all happen. Like that's tough. That's hard. So yeah, I, I'm 100% with you that yes, doing these big deals, is it easier? Absolutely. It's a lot less work to do one huge multifamily, but unless you have all that knowledge and experience, it's not something that you can read in a book. And I do agree with you that it's way easier to learn to do these small little single families and then use that knowledge and experience to do these larger deal sets. That's exactly right. Start small, learn what you need to learn, and then you can get bigger. I'm not saying you have to stay small forever. I'm just saying a lot of gurus say you need to start big as soon as possible. You know, like even recommending as your first deal. And that's where I have a little bit of a disconnect. I think you should start small for your first deal or two. And then if you're comfortable going big, go big. But I think you should at least start small, right? And then grow. Yeah, I have made so many mistakes. Like it's insane how many mistakes I've made and how much I learned along the way of bad loans, bad contractors, bad deals, bad employees, bad everything. Everything that can go wrong in real estate seems to go wrong. And it feels a lot better on a $100,000 property, doesn't it, than a million dollar property? A hundred percent. Like Nothing goes right, especially when you're learning. But like I was saying, if you're out 10K, you can dig yourself out of that. You can buy one bad property and be like, oh, well, I'll make up the money the next day. Versus if you go bad on a big deal, 
and your earnest, your 150K earnest money is tied up, you're kind of screwed. Like, what are you going to do? You still got to pay interest on that. It's a much bigger deal. So, yeah. This is cool. I've actually never thought about that or talked with anyone about that, but I full agreement with you there. And I think of it too as like a almost like a form of education. And so we think about college, right? People are willing to pay 20 to 50, 70, 80 grand a year. And so, you know what? Who cares? You screw up on a $10,000 property, you screw up on a $20,000 property. I mean, yeah, that sucks, but that's a relatively cheap form of education, right? Most people are willing to spend 50 to $100,000 a year for college. What's ten, twenty thousand dollars if you do lose that of trying to learn, right? In a real estate deal. Whereas you get into those bigger deals, hundred fifty, two hundred, two hundred fifty thousand dollars that's at risk. Now that's a totally different story. And there's also the non quantitative piece of this where you have reputational risk. So on a small property, if you screw up, most likely nobody's gonna know. You're probably doing it yourself, you probably didn't raise money, you're probably not burning any bridges, you don't have brokers knowing your name for not closing on deals, etc. You start to get into this big stuff. You know, real estate's a big world, but it's really not, right? It's pretty small. So, when, especially when you get into the big stuff, it's really pretty small. If you screw that up early, people are going to remember that. And I'm not saying you can't dig out of it or you can never get away from it, but it's going to put a ding on your reputation early. And I don't know if that's the best way to go. I don't think it is. Yeah, I couldn't agree with you more. Speaking of the education, the, the $40,000 coaching program or all of this stuff, that's the thing about these small single family homes is, you don't need to do that much work to actually, and I shouldn't say you do that much work, but with a, it's very simple. Let me just say it like, it's a very simple process. It is a lot of hard work, but the process to learn it and actually implement it, step one, choose a market. Step two, find a niche list. Step three, try to go talk to those people. Step four, if like we were saying earlier, forget about even putting in a contract, then say, bring it to an investor and say, I've talked to this person I hear he's ready to sell, sign, make the contract and all that happen. That is not a far stretch. Like That is not like unconceivable. And yeah, you may not make 10K, 15K on your first deal, especially if you all you did was do those first three steps. But sure, you're going to get a few thousand dollars from that investor for bringing you that opportunity. So I feel like the path to success, the path to creating some instant money that you can put back into doing it more and scaling, it's a lot easier on that uh, small single family home. Another thing is when you're at that much smaller scale, there's a lot more of them. And when there's a lot more of them, there's a lot more opportunity. So how many huge multifamily, 100 plus unit apartments are there where the property owner inherited the property and there's a code violation on it and there's some tax delinquency items on it. There's probably not that many, but there's literally tens and tens of thousands of those in the United States in the single family home space that anybody can go dig up and, and go after. So the just pure quantity of opportunity in the single family, there's a lot. As we get towards the end of the show, I like to ask guests three questions that create an action plan for listeners for when they're done this episode. I think everything we learned throughout the episode is great, but I don't want to see people just listen to this episode and not take action because just learning this stuff is essentially useless if you don't actually apply it. So I really like to create this action plan to give people three actionable steps that they can take when they're done this episode. So the first question gives listeners something to implement in their life. The second question gives them a resource to go learn from. And the third one gives a specific action item to take right now. So the first question is, which habit or principle do you follow in your life that has had a big impact on your success that not enough people do, but should? It's staying in my lane, doing what I am good at and sticking to what I'm good at and hiring for everything else or outsourcing it for everything else. So like I mentioned before, I've only talked to two homeowners my entire career because I'm not good at sales and I'm not good at the whole rapport and everything else that's needed. So that was my first hire. So I guess I would say, figure out what you're good at and then stick with that and outsource the rest. What has been the most influential book in your life? And it doesn't necessarily have to be your favorite because I know there can be a difference between favorite and influential. So what has had the most impact on you? 
two books, both with the same concept. The first is Traction by Gina Wickman. And then the second, it just came out. So unfortunately, I didn't have it before, but everyone listening has it, is Who Not How by Dan Sullivan. Both of these books are stress the same thing, which is, guess what I just mentioned, which is figure out what you're good at and hire out for the rest. And really the Who Not How by Dan Sullivan, it constantly talks about, it's like the title says, don't figure out how to do something. If you're trying to figure out how to do something, you're asking the wrong question. Figure out who can do it for you. So I didn't realize that's what I was asking at the beginning when I started doing the hiring, but it was. And now as I have a marketing company, I realized like, I don't need to figure out how to figure out this new marketing strategy. I just need to figure out who to bring on to implement that. The author of Traction, Gino Wickman, he's great. We actually had him here on Millennial Investing back on episode 10. So for anybody that's interested in learning a bit more about Traction, we talked about that book. We talked about his other new book that he had at the time. So if anybody's interested in learning a bit more from Gino, you could definitely check out episode 10. When this episode's over, before the listener quickly jumps to the next episode queued up in their podcast player, what is one action they should take from this episode that can help them improve their life, career, or business? It all starts with confidence. You can't accomplish anything without the confidence that it's 100% going to work. So back to your, all your questions about when to know to quit your job and all this other stuff, it really came down to 100% confidence that I knew I could make this work and make money. So. If you don't have the confidence, get the confidence right now to that you need to whatever business venture you're going down. Everything and anything will work, but you have to have the confidence knowing that it will work. So yeah, that's what I would recommend. Before we give a handoff to where people can find you, I'd like to wrap up the show by turning the tables for a second and letting the guest actually ask me a question. So Josh, what question do you have for me? I would love to know why you chose to be a podcast host. Like, why this? There's a hundred different careers you could have chosen besides being able to talk to Gene Wickman. Like, why did you choose to do this career? So, I don't know if I'd say I chose it. I think almost it chose me in a way. So, my goal and dream really growing up was actually to work at a hedge fund. And that ended up ultimately not working out for me. And so, I ended up really getting into podcasting as a listener myself. And my favorite show back when I first got started in listening to podcasts was a show called We Study Billionaires. It's part of TIP, the Investors Podcast. And so I just really loved the brand of TIP. And they had an opportunity to work with them to launch a podcast. And so I wasn't really looking to have a podcast or anything like that, but I really wanted to work with the company and the guys that founded it, Preston and Stig. They seemed awesome from the show. So I just I wanted to work with them. And so if you had told me five, six years ago that, you know, as I'm entering college, before I got my MBA and all of that, that I'd be speaking into a mic as, you know, my job and you know, obviously by real estate and stuff too, but like my main gig, if you will, is podcasting. I would have thought you were crazy. And so I don't think it was deliberate. I don't think I really chose it on purpose. It was just kind of how things have just kind of played out, to be completely honest. That's awesome. Have you seen Steve Jobs' uh, commencement speech at Stanford? I have. I need to go back and listen to it because I really like it, but I, ha- and I haven't heard it for a while, but I have heard it a couple times. Yeah, it's really cool. Definitely recommend everybody going and listening to that. And yeah, he speaks a lot about looking back. It's like kind of obvious. It's like why things, but you have to be able to look back. You can't really plan on going forward. So kind of what that reminded me of when you we were talking. That's really cool. Thanks. Yeah, people say you can connect the dots looking backwards, but you obviously can't going forward. Where can the audience go to connect with you, find you on the internet, learn more about what you got going on? Yeah. So uh, goforclothes.com is really where my heart and my passion is right now. It's a marketing agency for real estate investors where the sole purpose of it is it takes a lot of work to really find these distressed homeowners. So our goal is to do all that work for you so that you can focus on the sales and other things. So yeah, goforclothes.com is where you can find me. We also have a ton of resources there on like how to find the right zip code and everything is free so that you can really just dive in and and get going. So yeah, I love connecting with investors. That's really, I feel like the quickest, not the quickest, but it's a good way to create wealth. And so helping others achieve that is really where I'm at right now. So yeah, goforclothes.com is the best place to reach me at. 
I'll be sure to put a link to that website below in the show notes for anybody that's interested in checking it out. Josh, thanks so much for joining me. Awesome, man. I really appreciate you having me on. And yeah, just looking forward to listening to more of your episodes coming out. So thanks and keep it up. All right, guys. That's all I had for this week's episode of Real Estate Investing. I'll see you again next week. Thank you for listening to TIP. Make sure to subscribe to We Study Billionaires by the Investors Podcast Network. Every Wednesday, we teach you about Bitcoin, and every Saturday, we study billionaires and the financial markets. To access our show notes, transcripts, or courses, go to theinvestorspodcast.com. This show is for entertainment purposes only. Before making any decision, consult a professional. This show is copyrighted by the Investors Podcast Network. Written permission must be granted before syndication or rebroadcasting.